Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, meet the man who is the world record holder for eating heat, Greg Foster. Recently ate 10 Carolina Reaper peppers, the hottest around in 33 seconds. It's not his first record. So how do you handle that heat? We find out. We meet a nature photographer who had a close encounter with a legendary Banff grizzly bear known simply as The Boss. We learn how he captured that moment. A BC tech company uses data to help firefighters in Minnesota learn more about fire threats and ultimately save lives. A new study shows the most common passwords used across 30 countries, and it turns out we all tend to favor the same super simple ones, ones that are just as easy to crack, it turns out. But first, we speak to an American professor at Stanford University in California who's looked into what's driving inflation in this country, and he's come up with an interesting answer. Inflation, you may have noticed yesterday, held in October um, at 6.9%, the same as it was the month before. Now, the good news is that it didn't go up despite rising gasoline prices. The bad news is it didn't go down despite months of interest rate hikes trying to make it so. RSM Canada economist Tuen says the report was not surprising. This was um, not, I think it was not totally unexpected. It's obviously not not a good thing that inflation remains very stubborn, but the increase was almost entirely made up of increasing in gasoline prices, right? Now, keep in mind, uh, it has eased from 8.1% back in June, so it's down a little bit. It's proving stubborn, though. Canada is not alone, needless to say. In the group G20, the group of 20 top economies in the world, Argentina, 88%, Turkey, 85%, Britain, 11.1%, the EU, 107 the US is 77 all of them higher than us. The only countries in the G7 faring better than Canada right now are France and Japan, but what is to blame for infl- inflation in the first place? Why are we seeing this in so many places? Well, the opposition, of course, would like to blame it on the government. Here is uh, Jazrad Halan uh, attacking the finance minister in the House of Commons today. The minister's Mickey Mouse advice to cancel Disney subscriptions to magically save Canadians this winter from freezing won't help anybody. While the out-of-touch finance minister sits in her ivory tower in downtown Toronto lecturing Canadians, more and more people are hit with liberal inflation and rising taxes. So, what is to blame? I mean, we've been talking about this for months now, but... One U.S. academic has looked at Canada's situation from afar, so it's always interesting when someone from outside the country takes a look at your country, and he has a theory. It may sound familiar to a lot of people who feel like Ottawa borrowed too much and spent too much during the pandemic. Uh, Joining me now is John Cochran. He is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's author of The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level and a very good blog called The Grumpy Economist, which I recommend, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure. So uh, this has been a billion-dollar question in many uh, countries of late, uh, certainly here in Canada. What is driving high inflation? And you've landed, I think, on a $700 billion answer. Uh, what might it be? Uh, I think the primary cause was that um, Canada's government, like the U.S. government and many others, basically borrowed and printed a whole bunch of money and sent people checks. Those people are spending that money, and that's driving up prices. You've agreed that that was helping people out was the right thing to do at the time. Uh, the problem happened afterwards. What was it? Helping people was the right thing to do uh, in modest amounts, but it was right. horribly overdone uh, by many of our governments. 
I know the facts in the U.S. more than Canada, and we don't have my Canadian co-author here. Right. Uh, but in the U.S., we, uh, we didn't just give checks to people who were unemployed or kicked out of their houses. We gave checks to retirees living on federal pensions. Everybody got checks. So I think the wild overdoneness was, was uh, a lot of the problem. I guess uh, that was part of the issue. The, the rush to get money out the door meant that they cast a very wide net. And a lot of people here in Canada, they've been trying to bring to, you know, take some of that money back. It hasn't been all that effective. They are trying to do it. But really, you, just too much money out there, period. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know in the U.S., the discussion was not just let's help people in trouble, but let's give general fiscal stimulus. So this was the idea. You just don't need fiscal stimulus for an economy that's shut down from a pandemic. That's a different thing than a, a regular recession. So uh, you've talked about uh, the fact that that um, that what was needed here was a plan to repay that money, and that's what you're not seeing. Well, yes, our governments can borrow and print lots of money, and they often do, without causing a lot of inflation if people think the government has a plan to pay the money back. It turns into inflation when people don't see a plan to uh, pay it back. And that's partly um, our politicians weren't making a lot of noise about we're going to pay this back someday. Uh, and partly the fact that it was sent out as checks, which sort of sends that signal. But that is, there is not a, a constant tie between deficits and inflation. You can run big deficits if you're fighting a war. You build up a lot of debt if everybody understands there's a reason, which there was in this case, but also if everybody understands there's a way it's going to get paid back. And then they hold on to the debt. It's a good investment. They don't try to spend it right away. So in this case, the opposite is happening. Uh, evidently, yes, because we're getting people are trying to get rid of that debt and uh, we're driving up prices instead. Um, what role did central banks play in all this? Because uh, I remember I was actually working in the financial industry at the outset of the pandemic and through those early years. There was an awful lot of talk that, that inflation would be transitory, it would be short-lived. Um, were central banks caught off guard here? They were amazingly caught off guard, and that's one of the big uh, unsolved questions. How can central banks with a 2% inflation target get so surprised by 8, 9, 10% inflation? Oh, we didn't see this coming. Uh, I think the problem is in both the Bank of Canada and the US Fed. Our central bankers just don't think in terms of supply. They think always in terms of demand. So they got utterly blindsided by it. They did participate uh, in the big, big fiscal blowout was not just borrowed money. The Bank of Canada bought a lot of that debt from the government and turned it quickly into money, uh, which is more inflationary. And the U.S. Fed did the same thing. So they were they were blindsided by it. They were part of the printing money part of it. Uh, and then they kept interest rates low for a very long time, not noticing that the inflation was coming. In that sense, they didn't really start the inflation, but they could have gotten going more to do the one thing they know how to do, which is to raise interest rates. Yeah, but if all central bankers, and this includes, you know, uh, the Bank of England, uh, certainly the Fed, the Bank of Canada, all of them seem to be playing from the singing from the same songbook. So was this a, a an issue of um, of ideology? Was this sort of a way of approaching things that suddenly stopped working? I don't think of it as ideology, but it certainly is. Uh, central bankers talk to each other. They live in kind of a bubble and they speak this language that nobody outside the bubble does understand. Right. And I think they talk themselves into, uh, oh, it's supply shocks. Oh, it's just transitory. Oh, it'll go away. Go back and look at the history of the 1970s. It's remarkably similar. Every time inflation went up, it's, oh, it's uh, supply shocks. Oh, the dog ate my homework. It's not our fault. It'll go away. So there's a natural human tendency, plus the way central banks think about things, which I think led to this uh, big mistake. 
Yeah, what 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 is that? How do they think about? Because right now, clearly, what's happened is that inflation is high. It seems fairly sticky, fairly persistent. Although it's showing signs of leveling off a little bit here, and certainly in the U.S. where you are, but you know the Canadians, many of whom can least afford to cope with higher prices, are suddenly really bearing the brunt of rising interest rates and persistent inflation. Yes, uh, as as we will in the U.S., uh, things keep going this way. You know, it's very uncomfortable. A central banker would love it if it just goes away. And sometimes little blips in prices do go away. Inflation is very poorly measured. Jumping on it immediately with high interest rates is hard. And their tool is very limited. Recognize what we're trying to do. We have inflation that comes from a big fiscal blowout. And we say, oh, central bank, you go clean this up. Well, you know, the driver's got his foot on the gas pedal and the poor central banker has to pull the brake. And the tool is very uncomfortable. It raises interest rates, which people don't like. It raises mortgage rates, raises borrowing rates. The tool is to cause a little bit of a recession. Now, they hope to cause just enough of a recession to offset the inflationary boom, but that often goes wrong. And nobody likes a recession. Uh, so they're very reluctant to use it. And it's, it has limited power, I mean, really, because the inflation came from somewhere else. John Cochran is with us this half hour. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's also author of the Grumpy Economist blog. We're talking about inflation. Canada's new inflation uh, numbers came out yesterday for the month of October. Um, steady at 6.9%. So staying there, despite the another rise in interest rates, it uh, seems fairly sticky. But economists have thought it might go up even a little a little bit in uh, in the month because gasoline prices were up. Uh, so we're seeing some of the limits of, of the Bank of Canada's sole tool it seems here, which is to raise interest rates. Um, what else can be done? <laughs> well, there is a big question right now. I'm going to give a little preface and then what can be done. Um, and, and that this kind of divides the uh, academic community. We, know, we and central bankers know a whole lot less about inflation than we like to pretend. Right. And so will the inflation kind of go away on its own with modest interest rate rises? Or is the system unstable and uh, until the Bank of Canada raises interest rates above inflation, which means 7, 8, 9, 10% interest rates, will inflation spiral ever upwards? Now, conventional wisdom has been on the spiral ever upwards track, which says that only big interest rate rises and the consequent recession will bring it back. Uh, my own little branch of fiscal theory suggests, no, uh, that's not true. In fact, this inflation will go away pretty much once people have spent all that extra money and debt that they got uh, during the pandemic, even without massive interest rate rises. And, and the, the gentle tailing off of inflation does uh, seem to bear that out. But, but we'll see. What else can we do? So what are we going to do now? We're going to raise interest rates until inflation starts going down. That's clearly what's going to happen. Uh, fundamentally, though, if, if the problem was fiscal, the solution is fiscal. You know, Canada's big economic problem is not inflation. It's very, very slow growth. And getting growth going again would do wonders for inflation because it would put the government's fiscal policy back on track. Canada has a 100% debt to GDP ratio. So if you got growing again, then tax receipts would go up, spending needs would go down. I start paying off the debt and everything would uh, look much better without, uh, without much pain. You can get rid of inflation without much pain if you can get the economy and the sort of general fiscal policy steady and growing again. Yeah, you had some stats in that op-ed that were pretty shocking about just how little uh, wage growth has 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 how little wage growth has happened in this country. Uh, it really, it's almost stagnant um, over the last twenty years. 
Uh, it is stagnant. <laughs> yeah. And combine it with the exchange rate uh, decline. I mean, in terms of your ability to buy stuff in the U.S., Canada hasn't grown at all since 2010. It's grown very, very slowly in real Canadian dollars. You know, and, and I kind of despair of the U.S. growing slowly, but I look around the world, and this is common to the U.K. and Europe and Canada, This the, really the tailing off of economic growth, which is the, that in the end, you know, look how much better off you are than your grandparents were. That's what economic growth does. And if that stops happening, that, that's a big disaster. Yes. And also, solid growth solves the inflation problem. <laughs> right. We saw some some numbers out of uh, we saw things numbers coming out of England today were out of the UK which were staggering just sort of a lost decade um, based on some of the same issues. How do we avoid or how do we emerge from this stagnation? What aren't we doing? You called it sort of sand and sand in the gears. How how do we get rid of it? Well, yeah, inflation really is a wake up call, a slap in the face. Uh, I need some more metaphors here. <laughs> it overturns a decades worth of bad economic ideas. You cannot get back to growth by borrowing more money and spending it. And sort of the standard economic policy advice, not from me, but from standard people who offer it, was, oh, secular stagnation, you need to borrow more money, you need to send it out. That's over. The more money you send out, you just the more inflation you get. Uh, so we got to go back to the supply side. We have now seen what the supply capacity of the economy is. Got to grow that. And that you don't grow that with big schemes. You grow that with, um, I call it the grand Murray condoing of the economy. Right. You got to clean up all the sand and the gears in each little market. Uh, as a last question, one thing I found interesting, though, is, is, is you think that, you know, Canada, countries like Canada, the UK too, I guess at this point, the US, we're kind of in a precarious position if there were to be anything else that were to, you know, another shock to the system, so to speak. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that really is what keeps me up at night. Um we make all our plans assuming nothing bad will happen, but we are now, uh, both the U.S. and Canada, at 100% debt-to-GDP ratio. That means the government has borrowed uh, one times the entire annual output of the economy. And remember, the government doesn't own the whole economy, at least not yet. <laughs> so that's many, many years of, of government revenue and spending. The danger of that is, is not so much the regular trundling along, but the what happens in a shock. Uh, certainly, there's a danger if interest rates rise, then uh, we have to pay more interest on the debt. They, our governments are like a couple that buys a huge house they can't really afford, but the payments are low and they got the adjustable rate mortgage. Well, what happens when the mortgage rate goes up? That's a problem. And the other big problem is there will be another crisis, a pandemic, China invades Taiwan. I, I don't know, something bad will Anything. happen. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And our governments will want to stimulate and bail out and borrow trillions more dollars and we have just found we're at the point where the markets are saying, you know, we don't really want trillions more dollars of that stuff. Uh, we're just going to, you know, we're going to try to spend it and cause inflation. So you don't want to go into the next crisis with your ability to borrow tapped out. The Grumpy Economist blog. Again, I highly recommend it. John Cochran, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your insight on this. Thank you very much. Great questions. There's a famous story in my family about, um, you know, we lived in a, in a pretty multicultural area when I was growing up and we had a bottle of Matuk's hot pepper sauce in the house. Um, I don't know. I think my dad used it, but there's a famous story about when I was three or four, somehow it wound up on my burger and I ate it and it turned into a complete nightmare and I cried. And, you know, the usual, the first really, really hot thing you consume. Um, and this was talked about for years after that, this this one incident where I'd eaten this, this hot sauce. So every time I, I, I look at, people eating hot things. I think about that story. 
Um, now, Greg Foster's in a whole different league. Uh, he's from San Diego. He's a hot sauce maker, which makes sense. And he's just earned his third Guinness World Record within a single year, no less, uh, for ingesting rapidly eating very, and I mean very hot peppers. Uh, the latest came in September. It's just been recognized by the Guinness World Book of Records. 10 Carolina Reaper peppers in 33.15 seconds. That's like, I gather that's sort of Usain Bolt speed for eating <laughs> eating these things, if I'm mistaken. We'll find out. Uh, that's the fastest time. It's not the first one. Um, and, and the Carolina Reaper is just unbelievably hot on that Scoville scale, Scoville heat units, the SHU. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Greg explain exactly how that works. Um, but it, how do you prepare, how do you train for this? We wanted to find out. Greg Foster, Guinness World Record holder and founder of Inferno Farms Hot Sauce joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so tell me about the Carolina Reaper pepper because it, it sounds hot, <laughs> it let alone tastes hot. It, it is extremely spicy. It is... Um... I call it a paradigm shifting experience when you try a, a fresh piece of a Carolina Reaper. It, it really, if to the uninitiated, it's um, it's hard to comprehend just how spicy it can get. Um, you know, as you okay. mentioned, the Scoville scale, the Scoville heat units, the Carolina Reaper averages right around 2.2 million at this point uh, Scoville units. To to put that in perspective, a habanero pepper is about 300,000. A jalapeno pepper is about 5,000. So we're talking <laughs> wow. exponential factors of, of heat. And, Paradigm uh, shift, as you put it. Yeah. Yes, it, it really is. The first time I tried one, it was, um, it was so mind-alteringly hot that I was uh, on the floor of my living room in the fetal position in sheer agony but giggling in in joy and pain and euphoria all at the same time, um, just in the the sheer amazement of how spicy it was going on in my mouth at that time. And, and, and does uh, it does it like like so many things does it does it get hotter? Does it have a lingering impact? It's sort of how does it how does it first hit and then how does it how does it linger? Well, the first time that time that I tried the Reaper. Uh, I tried a, a, a slice, just a, a small slice of one, and I chewed it up and I swallowed it and I waited for about 30 seconds and nothing, it wasn't out of the ordinary spicy. I was just like, okay, what's the big deal? So I had another piece thinking that it was a dud pepper, right? <laughs> oh, and no. as soon as I finished chewing that one and swallowing, it immediately just like, uh, it, it was like a volcanic eruption is, is a great way to describe it, where you feel this sort of bubbling and then all of a sudden it's just this torrent of hot lava uh, consuming your senses. Um, and it continues to go up uh, for another 10 or 15 seconds. And then you, you kind of stay at that peak for a little while and then it kind of trails off over a period um to a slight tingle about 20 minutes later so it is quite the uh the the heat roller coaster just having you know a piece of one for those again the uninitiated that haven't experienced that kind of heat it's it it really is 
something to behold. Are they common? Uh, I, I guess we don't use them in cooking, right? Or at least not often. Um, you know, the, the, at least here in the States, um, you know, the industry is, is seeing a big uh, uh, expansion. You know, we're seeing a lot of growth in the hot sauce world and in the pepper world, uh, certainly through like Facebook communities and, right. and uh, social media and TikTok, of course, and all of these challenges that come up. So there is more and more interest and more and more awareness of it. Um, the, u- the, the high-end usage uh, uh, in the hot sauce world kind of falls into two categories. One of, of sauces that are diluted enough that you, they're really spicy, but they're still enjoyable. And then the novelty level uh, heat that uses extracts and, and just... Uh, very high percentage by volume of pepper in there to make just the hottest thing possible. Um, yeah. So there is, there is more experience. every year. There's more and more interest in every one of these records that I break. There's more and more uh, 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 noise being made about them. So it's it's been really fun to be a part of it and really fun to watch. Yeah. So, so tell me, so you ate 10 of them. <laughs> you just talked about eating a piece of one earlier and, and crawling into the fetal, <laughs> sort of ending up in the fetal position. You ate 10 right. in 30 seconds. That's a, how does one train for that? Practice. Lots of practice. <laughs> um, wow. You know, my first world record that I took was back in 2016 was the most Carolina Reapers eaten in one minute. Right. Uh, and I did 120 grams, and that record still holds to this day. Um, and we've attempted to break that record probably on average four times a year since then, uh, only with a short break, of course, during pandemic. Right. Um, so my 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 practice at consuming large amounts of these peppers very fast. I've 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 had a lot of practice, um, you know, and as a hot sauce maker, as somebody who grows Carolina Reapers every season, um, I have a plethora at my disposal. So um, I am a habitual consumer at this point to a level that right. most people look at me with just, you know, jaws agape at, <laughs> at, 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 in wonder of how can you do that? How do you not suffer and die? It's like, it, you know, it's it's um, an acclimation to the way that my body reacts to it and right. uh, um, uh, an awareness of what is to come. You know, when I eat a piece of Reaper, I know that that initial breath will be taken away and the heat's going to build and it's going to hit a certain level. And since I have a lot of practice with it, the the, the I don't. Uh, suffer the the physical shock. I don't go through you know mental panic and and all of those things that that a lot of people tend to experience. Um, yes, I, I can imagine. I, I I have to ask you if you've ever rubbed your eye by accident because we've all done that. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the one thing I'd be the most worried about if I were you. Well, the, the fact that I, I I eat them regularly and I cook with them regularly. 
the short answer to that is yes. And, and let me just say the eye is not the only thing that I've touched that I've regretted handling Reapers beforehand. <laughs> no kidding. Your hands are like, your hands are like toxic at that point, right? Or like flamethrowers yeah, it, at that point. It's gotten to the point where I've forgotten that I've handled things. And then, you know, I'll jump in the shower at the end of yeah. a long day and like my forearms will burn and my my, uh, you know, my whole face, if there's powder, my whole face will burn, you know, and it's just like, oh, yeah, that's right. I was handling Reapers today. So, yeah, yeah it's it, it's always an adventure in our house. No kidding. I actually saw Joey Chestnut win one of those hot dog eating contests. And, and we were just happened to be in New York on July the 4th, ended up on Coney Island. And there he was. So I've always wow. been fascinated by the ability to eat things quickly. That's a bit less. Uh, that's more sort of endurance. And I think yours is more kind of, you know, yours is more like the 100 meter dash, I think, than the marathon. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the time it's gotten to the point now where we're pushing the limits on the speed and, and consumption is more about the mechanics really than the heat tolerance. And, and frankly, the one, this one of 10 reapers in 30 seconds, um, the real peak of the heat doesn't hit until I've finished eating all 10 of them. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that just mind bending amount of pain that's about to wash over me hasn't even occurred by the time that I'm finished eating. So it's really more of a, a speed eating challenge to get the record. And then it's just, you know, my own <laughs> masochistic mind that wants to deal with the, the aftermath. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was for, it, you know, yeah. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I really do it for, you know, everybody out there that enjoys schadenfreude, you know, it's like, yeah. Uh, suffering, um, suffering for other others' enjoyments is uh, kind of a fun thing for me with with these peppers because I can tolerate it. I can get that amount in my in my mouth, and yes, it still hurts a lot. <laughs> you know, I break into sweats and I'm you know writhing in pain, and 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 uh, you know I I try to bring some fun and joy to uh, and awareness, obviously to the pepper community and, and of course marketing purposes for my own hot sauce company, but it, you of know, course, it's really about, of course, yeah. Yeah. you know, what, um, talent I've cultivated this talent. I may as well make the most of it while I can. Right. Absolutely. Listen, if eating a hundred hot dogs and whatever is, is considered to be a high, right. high art, this is even cooler, by the way, uh, I think, cause, cause there's actually, there is sort of, a cachet about it. You do have the company. Um, I can't let you go without asking you what would be, if you had to pick a pepper that you'd actually really love to eat, what's the best one? Without going into the 1.6, going off the Richter scale, the Scoville heat unit scale, so to speak. You know, um, I've gotten to that point where eating peppers for me is, is uh, there, there's a pepper for just about any meal, any palate, you know, anything you're going for. If I'm doing like, let's say some sort of barbecue meat, uh, like smoked meat, I'll probably tend towards like a smoked pepper, like a chipotle or a pasilla or, um, um, you know, ancho or something like that. That's got a little more depth of character to it. If I'm doing something like a salad, that's when I'm going to bring in like the ghost pepper or, uh, or the reaper or something that's going to give me that sort of 
fresh, exciting bite, and then the heat on the backside. Um, you know, I'm, I've, I've kind of grown out of eating the habanero. I've done it so much uh, as a younger man that the flavor of the habaneros, to me, just it, it, it. I know this is going to sound kind of <laughs> trite, but it's kind of bland to me anymore. You know, a lot of people describe it as citrusy and bright and all these things, but I get, I get that out of a lot of spicier peppers that meet my heat desires for, for meals, you know, the scorpions. And there's a lot of exciting new crosses out there. I've uh, this year, I grew some um, white Carolina reapers that have a, 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 a very bright, almost like grassy green flavor to it that oh, wow. harkens back to what I used to get out of the habanero. So, you know, I'm looking at the variety on the top end for me, for, for my consumption. It's, it's just kind of in my nature now where the, the, you know, munching on a jalapeno or a serrano pepper is just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> it's like I may as well be eating a cucumber. Yeah, like a, exactly. Like a, like a gherkin <laughs> or something. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, Greg, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing all of that. I learned more. I learned more in the last fifteen minutes than I learned in most days. So thanks so much. <laughs> well, that's great. I'm happy to share, and I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Well, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly bear. A friend of mine used to say all the time. I'm not even sure where the saying comes from, but it sounds good. And if you're going to be a grizzly bear, you may as well be the boss, right? That's a great name. Makes me think of Bruce Springsteen, but yeah, the boss. That's the nickname given to an absolutely enormous grizzly that calls Banff National Park home. Bear 122, I believe, is the official name. Uh, He's in his 20s. He weighs some 600 pounds, the largest and oldest of his kind in the area. He's one tough customer. Apparently, he survived a train strike. So you can imagine what it might be like to have a relatively close encounter with uh, the boss especially at this time of year. And that's exactly what happened to award-winning nature photographer Jason Leo Bantle, who joins us now. Thank you so much, Jason, for your time tonight. Good evening, Ben. So tell me about this. Um, you, must have known, you must have known all about this bear before you set out. Yeah, I live out in the Canmore uh, Banff area, so the boss is a local legend. I know now he's becoming a Canadian legend through uh, all the press this week, which is awesome. Yeah, he's yeah. just uh, one of our local bears that, uh, you know, you, you speak of, of some of the things, uh, his age, uh, being hit by the train. Uh, one thing you didn't mention is at one point uh, he actually uh, dug a black bear out of its den before he went to sleep and, and had a bit of a snack. So he's kind <laughs> wow. of a, a big, a big bad bear. But, uh, I mean, he's just doing his bear things, right? Yeah, I mean, bears will be bears. I was actually reading about it in a UK paper today, believe it or not, Jason. It's, they've picked it up too, uh, about the boss and your and your photos, mind you. So what on, what happened on this particular day? I, I don't go looking for the boss. Uh, I, I've experienced the boss on three different occasions over, over the last five to seven years. On this certain occasion, I was out headed uh, out for another shoot, uh, actually to photograph moose. And I was traveling down a snowy roadway. It was early in the morning and a little bit of light snow. And I, as I'm driving down in the lights of my vehicle, I saw something, you know, tracks that cross the road. So I, I stopped the vehicle, backed it up and looked. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's a grizzly bear. 
and kind of investigated the tracks a little bit more. And I'm like, oh, they're fairly fresh. Now, I didn't go and follow the bear. That would not be something I would do at this time of year. This time of year, they're very hungry. They're going through something called hyperphagia, which means they just want to eat everything they see. I have done a master's in biology and with my profession as a nature photographer, I'm curious. So I followed the tracks from the direction that he had come from. I wanted to know what he had been up to. And I very quickly found a little den or a little bed that he had made and he slept in that night. He woke up that morning. He had gone to the bathroom. His scat was bigger than my size 13 boots. It was huge. So he had had a good meal the night before. And I followed back further and his tracks meandered and he was digging up ground squirrels underneath stumps and things like that. So it was it was more a biology kind of lesson for me. Got back in my vehicle and headed down the road and about a kilometer down the road, Ben, there he was. And from the safety of my vehicle, I managed to observe him uh, digging underneath a stump. And he looked up for a split second. I got five or six images. Wow. Yeah, the pictures are unbelievable. Lucky. The light, the lighting, <laughs> the lighting too. Like you don't always get the perfect light, right? The lighting in the pictures was fantastic as well. Yeah, you know, this is a bear that I've photographed before and he doesn't pose for long. Typically, you don't get his eyes. He's the boss. He's not, you know, going, oh, well, you know, I'll pose for you. I want to be known. He's doing his thing. And so, yeah, I mean, to get him to look right into the camera and he has such soulful eyes. It was just an incredible encounter. I ended up deciding not to go, you know, travel for, for my moose photography that day. It was getting too late in the day. So I went and grabbed some lunch and came back down that roadway later in the afternoon and decided to walk in just a small ways off the road. I wanted to be close to my vehicle and I sat in the meadow just to watch the sunset and thought, you never know, maybe he'll walk through here. And lo and behold, Benny walks through that meadow right at sunset. And from okay. about 150 meters away, yeah, I got to see him twice that day. And 150 meters away, I got to shoot some incredible video that uh, I'm sure you've seen. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. must, I mean, give, given, given, given the experience that you've had as a nature photographer, given your understanding of biology, you must feel like there's almost something symbiotic going on sometimes. Yeah, that day is definitely one of those days where you kind of question and go, what, what kind of all happened here? You know, uh, everything lined up, but Again, Ben, I mean, I spend a lot of time in the field where you don't see anything. So some days it just has to line up, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the stars align. I mean, it's like that in, in, in this business, too. If you're a field reporter, some days just everything goes right for you and you have no idea. You spend months trying to figure out what the, what the secret sauce was that day. Um, but it, it it isn't anything. It's just, you know, it's happenstance. But what amazing photographs. Did you know? I mean, I guess right away you would have known how good the pictures were because you can see them right away. It's not like the old days you'd have to wait right yeah and actually i'm a, i'm an originally a 35 millimeter film shooter so you're right you used right. to have to wait a week to get your film back and such but now with the digital yeah it was it was neat to see the images until you actually print them though because i i you know my work i i have the all in the wild galleries and until i actually print the work and get to see them on that print i don't really have that same appreciation because i'm still a print guy I, I love that feeling of the print and such and you know what maybe ben maybe he just wants his story told he's he's getting a little bit older and it's been yeah. so nice this this uh, kind of week that he's been covered nationally. And now you said in the UK papers as well. I mean, what a great thing to give appreciation to our bears of Canada that, you know, are so important uh, and that are a Canadian symbol. Yeah, they're part of Canada yeah. culture. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things um, that, that struck me most about some of the coverage of it is that there is a bit of a sad undertone to all of it as well, right? There is a certain sadness to the fact that he's survived, but he's he's one of the lucky ones. Yeah, Ben, you speak of something that, yeah, not everybody is covering, and you're right. I mean, we we lose a lot of bears, unfortunately, in our you know, Banff area to rail strikes and to, um, to, to the roadway as well. We lost a very, you know, young and up and coming female this year that uh, got hit on the trans Canada and we lost her mom the year before on that exact same stretch of highway on the trans Canada. So parks Canada works so diligently to, to help these bears and work to, to make sure that they're safe. And, and we have to do our part as well by being respectful and not heading out into that back country and not being bear prepared, right? Bear spray and don't approach bears. You know, um, I have a long lens for a reason, Ben. <laughs> you don't want to get close <laughs> yes, to these indeed. bears, <laughs> especially <Yeah>. the boss. <laughs> especially the boss. Yeah. But you did capture some unbelievable photos of him. I mean, you of having captured photos of him before. What, what about these? When you talked about his eyes, he, you just have that shot where he looks, there's the one where he looks like he's looking right at you and you wonder what he's thinking. You wonder what he's thinking. Yeah. When I first saw the image and, and shared it with my partner, you know, we both kind of said he actually looks a little bit, you know, almost a little bit sad. And I said, I don't know, maybe he looks soulful. Uh, you know, yeah. he's getting up there in age and perhaps he's appreciating the fact that He's going into hibernation and he's going into hibernation in really good shape and, and really healthy and such. But maybe he's become a little bit more of a thoughtful bear. Now we're anthropomorphizing, but, uh, we are, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. it's hard to say what, what's going on. And then the the video that I shot in the uh, meadow and such, I did grab a couple stills there quickly. And, and he didn't even know I was there, which was really nice. You know, he just kind of lumbered through being the boss, he, he's just going in his direction and, and, you know, no worries or concerns. And some of the stills there with the evening light, there's some beautiful rim lighting on him from the mm. sun setting and such. And uh, these images have a, a bit of a, I don't know how to say it, but a real surreal feel to them in terms of where this bear lives and the life that he lives. He's in the mountains. He's in those cool, dark, you know, mountains that uh, just have the beautiful light early morning and, and late evening. So yeah, they're different yeah. from my, from my other ones. My, my most recent release of him was a very, you know, head on coming right at me and a really intense bear, which he is, but uh, it's nice to see the softer side of the boss too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what struck me about it too, is that he lives, he seems to lead a pretty solitary life, right? He's got a few things on his mind, obviously, but he seems to <laughs> roam alone, so to speak. Yeah, well, he, he roams a big area. He has a home range of, I think Parks Canada said something around the neighborhood of 2,500 square kilometers. Wow. And grizzly bears are, yeah, huge area. Like, he will go into BC, I was told at times, from, from Banff, so he'll wander that far in. Uh, they did have a radio collar on him at one time, and it showed, you know, grizzly bears, for the most part, are a solitary animal, except in that spring season. And he would do these big ventures, uh, you know, kind of in the valleys and such, looking for, for girlfriends. He's father, they estimate, somewhere greater than 50% of the cubs in the valley. So come springtime, he's a busy boy. He's very social then. But you're right, the rest of the year, he's just a solitary, cool guy. Yeah, doing his thing. 
Jason Leo Bantle is with us uh, this half hour, a nature photographer based in Canmore, Alberta. We're talking about some recent pictures that he took, some spectacular images and video of a grizzly bear known simply as the boss. He is a, he's a big guy, a big guy, 600 plus pounds. Uh, he pretty much rules the roost, so to speak, in Banff National Park. Uh, Jason, I just want to, so, you know, they don't always do the greatest job in the tabloids in, this, in the UK. So this is the Daily Star UK's online article about uh, your photos. World's toughest bear, the boss, it starts, survived being hit by a train and his father to 70% of cubs. Um, it says the impressive impressive behemoth bear dubbed the boss has survived being pummeled into by a train, fathered 70% of cubs in the area, and even eats his fellow grizzly bears as the 600-pound titan travels a park. So there you go. <laughs> there's your story wrapped into like tabloid style which is i'll send it to you it's pretty amazing yeah, i'd love to see that yeah well he's uh he's gonna be a legend in the world not just in canada <laughs> yeah no you know the tabloids have a very specific style the british tabloids of writing and that's that's it right that's it so it catches yeah. the eye it's fairly complimentary otherwise though about uh about the boss so what now i guess i mean this it doesn't get better than this i suppose but he's obviously not going to be seen for a while now, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, um, um, talking with Parks today on, on another uh, interview program, um, yeah, the the thing is, is that he is a bear that will go to sleep quite late. Uh, I didn't okay. even, I wasn't even aware of this, Ben, that uh, they said some years he may not even go into to bed until shortly after Christmas. Really? Part of it is, is yeah, well, part of it is, is if a grizzly bear, well, and I think this, this, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe this is with black bears as well, that if they have a food source and they can still move around, meaning the snow hasn't gotten too deep, they will delay going into hibernation, um, you know, and then they'll just go for a shorter sleep. And then I guess he can be up as early as early March uh, heading out, uh, you know, and, and looking for that food again. And, and again, part of it in Banff National Park is, with the railway there and the grain cars going through that they do drop a little bit of grain on, on those tracks. And that's a food source for the boss. Yeah. I, that's one. I guess he roams the tracks, right? I guess a lot of them do, which is part of both, I guess, a benefit and a curse to them. Yeah. You know, and also with that, the ungulates will go as well, the deer and the elk and the moose. So they'll wander those tracks and they might accidentally get hit by a train. And then of course he will be a, a carnivore in that instance. Right. And he'll clean up uh the carrion that might be there beside the track. So he's, he's kind of got some easy pickings uh, depending on, on what happens along those tracks. And he's a bear that's, I believe, learned to how to survive on those tracks. A lot of bears have, have gotten struck on there. Parks Canada, again, I, I want to compliment them. They've, they've built a lot of kind of escape routes for the bears as well. And they've worked with the rail line to, to help in, ensuring that there's safety corridors for for the animals. Some of these animals, especially grizzly bears, you know, we, we only have, I believe the estimate is only 65 grizzly bears in Banff National Park. So every bear is very important to the longevity of that species in that area. Yeah, just 65, that few. That's what I heard recently and what I yeah. read as well. And, and that was a shocking number for me. Now, that's just in Banff. If we go into Yoho and Kootenays and, you know, Jasper National Park, that number would climb quite dramatically. And the other good news is I believe I've heard recently that Alberta's grizzly bear population is on the increase. So that's great news in general for, you know, 
single-handedly by the boss. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. So, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, we we'll don't let want the da- we'll let the daily but... star we'll let the daily star know. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, <laughs> must, you must be you must be happy about the attention though that this has received because in some ways it's a great compliment to you, of course. But it's also, as you were pointing out earlier, you do have a people have an affection for the boss here as well. Yeah, I feel I feel really honored. I mean, obviously, I, I appreciate, you know, for myself and, and my galleries, all the attention that it's brought to me. But I think what I really appreciate is that this is what Canada is, you know, it's featured in the news this week in Canada. And that's going to mean good things, I hope, for bears and I hope for nature in general, because it's putting them on the map and, and us all having conversations about the importance of bears and and providing, you know, habitat for them, providing space for them, and also being bear smart when we're we're in their homes. I I make the analogy. I mean, imagine if a grizzly bear walked into your home right now, you'd be like, whoa. And we have to think of it that way as well. Grizzly bears are very used to having big, large spaces where there wouldn't be any humans. And so they need those big tracts of land that are intact to, to be healthy and to have healthy populations. So I think that's the greater thing that I kind of like this week is I think people are maybe having those conversations and we brought some attention all from this one bear that, you know, he doesn't know how, how much attention he's bringing to his species. So congratulations to the boss. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and uh, Jason, where can they find your, quickly, where can they find your gallery online if they want to look at, uh, want to go have a look? Oh, thank you for doing that. Yeah, uh, allinthewild.com. Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm owner and and founder of All in the Wild Galleries. So yeah, that uh, we have galleries across Canada. Nothing in the Vancouver area, sorry. But uh, yeah, so elsewhere, All in the Wild. Yes, the Daily Star called the boss a 43 stone titan. So I bet she's never been called that before. <laughs> so there you go. I'll send that your way. Uh, Jason, you thank you so knew. much. If you only knew. Thank you so much for sharing your yeah. story tonight. It was great. Thanks for sharing this with your listeners. Well, I always find data really interesting. Big data is really interesting. I worked uh, briefly in the financial industry. And of course, data is king in the financial industry. In fact, it's king just about everywhere now from baseball, sports, analytics, you name it. You know, there's a lot of numbers out there. There's a lot of data out there. But how about firefighting? That's what happened in Minnesota, where the state fire marshal division moved to try to improve things after fire deaths reached a 22-year high in the state uh, back in uh, 2017, 2018. 68 deaths uh, was a 22-year high. And that's where a Canadian company, a BC company, came in. They started working, um, the state of Minnesota did, started working with a company called Urban Logic to build a platform that could help it assess fire risks, identify trends, and ultimately do a better job of prevention and save lives. Um, They built that platform using data that was already out there, but the data exists in silos, right? It's not easy to find. You have to go out and find it all. Here's what uh, the Minnesota firefighters had to say about why they needed it. Data is is really involved in everything that we do today, from fire response to inspections to community risk reduction. After looking at the data from 2017, there was a spike in our fire fatalities in the state. So what we were looking for was somebody who could do that data analysis for us, pull from a number of different data sources, put those pieces of a puzzle together in a way that would make sense to fire chiefs around the state of Minnesota. Now, this is happening in Minnesota. It could be happening anywhere. 
Um, but what's interesting about it, of course, is they called on a Canadian company, a BC-based company, a Vancouver-based company to help them out with this. Uh, and really, it was about finding the data that was out there, breaking down those data silos and trying to compile something that was easy to use both in an urban environment for an urban fire service, but also in a rural environment where you have volunteer fire services, for instance, um, and trying to find a way that would allow those fire services to identify where the riskiest areas were. That allows them to target limited resources and so forth. So it really is putting data to the kinds of use that maybe we don't, we would never think of, but it might be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about how data can be used properly. And joining me now to tell us all about it or tell us more about it is Herman Chandy. He's Chief Operating Officer with Urban Logic. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having having me, Ben. So this is interesting because I don't think we often think, you know, when I think of big data, you know, you think of, of economics, you think of even sports, for instance, but you don't often think of firefighting. What was the need here? I gather um, the fire marshal service in Minnesota came to you with an issue and, and they wanted you wanted some help in figuring out how to solve it. Yeah, no, that's exactly correct. So, you know, unfortunately, the state of Minnesota had a record number of fire deaths uh, back in 2017, 2018, and that trend was continuing. Uh, and they found out that a lot of those deaths were caused by cigarette smoking. Now, it took a while for them to establish that trend. Uh, and that's often a problem in government. The the time to get that insight, to learn about what's happening in your community, just it takes a while. So uh, they t- the state of Minnesota tasked us to come in uh, and essentially you know, build a complete picture of their community. Where do residents live? Where are the risks in terms of uh, casualties that might happen as a result of fires? Uh, you know, where where are the smoking rates in the community? Uh, and, and can that can that data be used to better target like prevention efforts, education efforts? Uh, you know, knocking on doors and installing smoke detectors or other type of education campaigns to really help the community. Um, so that's how the work started. And that was a problem. And that's sort of how we uh, approached um, the problem. Now, I imagine that all that data doesn't live in one place, right? That this was going to demand you having to go out and search for, for, for a lot of this data so you could build this, build this, build this image really of the state. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Uh, if you if you think about government and how government makes decision, you know, decisions uh, around how to deploy resources, it often involves, uh, hey, where is my data? Um, and when you start with that question, you realize how much of a data silo problem exists uh, in government and in the state of Minnesota. So what I mean by that is the state has data, the cities within the state have data, the counties within the state have data, the fire departments have data, the federal government has data. And if you want a complete picture of your community, uh, where where do, where do residents live? Um, what are the streets like? Where are the wildlands that there might be fires? Like that data picture and completing that data picture just takes a lot of time. And most people in the public sector don't have the skills to do that. So uh, Urban Logic, basically, where the data silo busters, you know, we go around, we acquire a clean, grab this data from various sources so that that fire chief can just log into a system and see this is the, the this is the picture of my community uh, across all levels. How does it work then? I, I know that it was uh, there was a big splash yesterday uh, in Minnesota specifically, but uh, you know it's a Canadian company, so we'll talk about it here as well. Um, but when you, how exactly does it work? So so in terms of individual fire services in Minnesota, what do they now have access to that they didn't before? Yeah, so let me paint a picture. Let's say I'm a fire chief in a suburban uh, city. Uh, I manage a fire department. I have three or four staffs, maybe one fire hall, maybe two fire halls. 
Now what they can do is they log into a system on the web and essentially they could then decide, for example, uh, the Red Cross has donated a bunch of smoke detectors. Um, where do I, where do I put these? Like who, who do I target? And so they can log into the urban logic system, our fire analysis tool, figure out which neighborhoods to target based on demographic profile, based on past fire events, uh, and then basically spend a couple hours, you know, knocking the right doors in the right part of the community uh, and offering to install those smoke detectors. So that is an example of how this works. We give the fire chiefs, we give stakeholders the ability to basically better plan their prevention efforts, whether that's smoke detectors, whether that's a fire truck to a school to educate children about, you know, fire risk at home, any type of sort of prevention effort. That's what our our, our system allows for in a few simple clicks. Because I guess previously they were pretty much uh, reaching in the dark a little bit, not really knowing exactly how to target these. I imagine they have a certain amount of uh, knowledge that would be inherent to, to being a firefighter in the district, but they didn't really know. That's exactly it. You know, a lot, a lot of folks in government, they, re, they rely on their gut. They, they rely on their life experience. They rely on heuristics. They know their community, right? Um, and the reason to do that is not necessarily out of choice. Uh, you know, governments collect data. They might only use 20% of that data they collect because it's just too difficult to work with the rest of it. So you, if, if you start with their gut, you're, you're probably making uh, decisions that are, are based on life experience. But where you're probably making decisions that don't correspond to data if you had access to that data. So, you know, we give them a more complete picture and we also give them a complete picture while they're very stretched for time. That's the other key thing here as well. Like firefighters are responding to uh, medical calls now, you know, other types of emergencies. It's not just fires. Um, So they don't really have a lot of time to think about fire risk management. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the complete the benefit of the complete picture uh, we provide uh, as a result of our platform. Yeah, I, I guess they have limited resources, right? So this also helps them target the limited resources they do have in a way that makes more sense. That's that's right. Limited resources. You know, we're talking about the state of Minnesota, which is a which which is a big state, right? And a state is composed of your urban urban centers, but it's also composed of your suburban centers and your rural centers as well. So you know, rural areas which have fire risk, they're often run by volunteer fire departments. So just think about the fact that your fire chief might have a day job or a desk job. And then it's like, okay, I got the weekend to think about, you know, prevention efforts. And so they're, they're especially stretched for time. So we're dealing with all type of fire departments. We're not just focusing on urban areas, you know, cities, dense cities often get a lot of attention. And this type of technology, we're focusing on all types of communities uh, in the state of Minnesota. Yeah, anything. I mean, I know it's early days yet, but is there anything that was counterintuitive that has already jumped out of this data, even for them? Yeah, there was an example that was a success story that was given to us right off the bat. Um, so in the in Minneapolis Fire Department, uh, essentially, you know, there was a campaign that they wanted to run a couple of weeks ago. The health department got involved um, because there have been a lot of fires in Minneapolis, and the insight they were able to gain was: I'm in in the Urban Logic tool. I see that. Wow, most fires happen at six to seven PM, and they happen um, as a result of cooking fires, right? So that allows for like a targeted campaign, a messaging campaign where you send a message out to the community, maybe through social media. Watch your stove six to seven PM. You might be tired in your evening hours, but that's that's when there's fire risk, and you know that those kind of education efforts are allowable as a result of. So some of the insights that are generated um, in our platform. Right. I imagine it also helps them when it comes to budgeting and so on, because they need money for these sorts of campaigns. If they could say, here's where uh, the fire risk is highest, here's the money we need to do this at this time, they have the data to back it up. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, city city councils, you know, anytime there's a death in the community, unfortunately, like that just raises a lot of attention in city councils and um, cities are the uh, ones that often fund these fire departments. So, you know, council members and mayors are wondering how are the dollars being spent and if more dollars are needed. Um, so if firefighters and fire departments can come to that meeting and bring a picture, a data, a complete data picture in terms of asking for uh, resources, that's made all the more possible with a with a data insight tool like ours. Yeah, clear, uh, clearly this has use uh, way beyond the state of Minnesota. It's interesting that Minnesota decided that because of fire deaths, they needed this and then came to you uh, for it, because that in itself is an expenditure that oftentimes you don't see municipalities or states necessarily, or provinces for that matter, necessarily take the plunge with. Yeah, I, you know, uh, Minnesota... It was through circumstance that we were able to match with Minnesota. They saw what we did in terms of some of the other um, services we pro- provided to government in terms of data analytics, and and uh, they partnered with us. But this kind of technology can definitely be used by any fire department in Canada and the United States. You know, fire departments in Surrey to the province of BC to Ontario, every different community do- does community risk reduction efforts and fire prevention efforts, and we know based on how Minnesota did it, that there's probably a data silo problem that exists across many fire departments. So we truly believe the technology we jointly developed with Minnesota uh, can be used by um, other jurisdictions, both in Canada and the United States. Herman Tandy is with us. He's Chief Operating Officer of Vancouver-based Urban Logic. We're talking about uh, uh, a platform they've developed in conjunction with the state of Minnesota to help fire prevention in that state. There'd been a big spike in fire deaths back in 2017, 2018. They decided they needed to know more about what was happening and why. They needed real numbers, real answers, and called in a Vancouver-based company to help them with that. Uh, Herman, you guys have done a lot of work in other places too, often around traffic, right? I mean, this is a one area that I guess we are, we're used to seeing data being used, but it is fairly amazing just how much more we can know about things. I mean, it feels like we've done a lot of this, just as you mentioned, by gut for a very long time. And now we have an opportunity through all these data sets to actually figure out exactly how things work. Even as you were mentioning, something as as basic as, you know, most fires happen between six and seven. Let's target uh, fire prevention, you know, between 530 and 630, for instance. Yeah, that's right. You know, it, it all starts with this fundamental premise that governments impact our lives uh, every day at all levels. Like a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you take a step back when you, when you leave your house, when you just, when you're, you're committing to work, that is a series of government decisions. Um, you know, wh- the roads, the traffic signals you have to go right. through, uh, where businesses des- decide to locate, uh, the supply chains that supply those businesses. So in terms of how government operates, um, yes, you know, we're talking about fire safety, but you can extend that back and talk about, sort of all types of data across all type of government decision-making. Um, you know, here in Vancouver, we have a long-range transportation plan process and, you know, folks have decided to build a, a $4 billion SkyTrain, right? right? Uh, and, you know, if you take a step back and wonder, like, how that decision-making process went, came together and what kind of data sets uh, were analyzed, the, the stuff I talked about in terms of fire departments and their data gaps and data silos likely extends to that decision-making process around uh, transit infrastructure as well. So, um, yeah, we see it all, and we think big big data and even just data access in general to the public sector has the potential to transform government and can make government more efficient uh, and build sort of more resilient, safer communities. 
Because we've seen it work elsewhere. I mean, I always think back to you know, you know, Billy Bean and Moneyball and so on, and and sort of the idea that that you know that for a very long time baseball was a gut instinct sport where scouts were gut instinct uh, people, but all of a sudden they they started using analytics and it changed the, the the sport to a certain extent. I know that's very simplistic, but in some ways I gather that a lot of what we've been doing around safety and prevention and urban planning and so on, not that it's not done with expertise, but sometimes it's also done with knowledge gaps that we could fill and do a better job. with. Yeah, that's right. Like, we don't want to discount expertise. Uh, you know, folks in their professions, especially in the public sector, they're, they are the experts. You know, you spend your whole life becoming a firefighter um, and getting trained up. You spend your whole life becoming a traffic engineer, learning how signals uh, operate. Um, those skills are critically important in the public sector. And a lot of times those folks are asking for data access or they're communicating to us the struggles around data access because they know, you know, if you can combine skills with technology, um, that combination can be very beneficial to society. So the motivation is there. I think the time is now uh, in terms of the world of big data. You know, we're seeing a data explosion. Uh, more data sets are being created in the last, have been created in the last year than in the entirety of human history. This is a trend we hear about uh, every year. And, you know, let's bring the, the power of that data and those insights to these public servants, combine it with their expertise. Uh, and then we should have, and, you know, our, 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 our reason for being uh, as a company is that, um, you know, these governments with that technology will just build better communities. Yeah, I, I guess it's, it's filling in a knowledge gap. I, I, I Much the same way with Minnesota, they know the, the knowledge gap is out there. They just need you to come in and, and, and crunch the data and show them what it is, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Uh, you know, in the, in the state of Minnesota, we brought in the, the knowledge gap was around what are the demographics in, in the neighborhood? What is the infrastructure like in the neighborhood? What are the building footprints? How old are building structures? How, how, are, new, how new are building structures? You know, that those data sets, like the knowledge is there that they, that should be looked at. Um, but getting access to that in one easy place is like the crux of the challenge. And that is that is what Urban Logic works on. Well, Herman Chandy, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. We've been asking you tonight about passwords. Passwords can be a pain. You know that. If you have many, have you ever sat there with your phone with like, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, some subscription you have to a magazine and you're sitting there trying to remember what your password was. You think, I'm not going to go and reset it because that's going to take time. And I, what was it? What was it? And you sit there going through the, you know, maybe the army of passwords you may use, trying to remember which one that one was, um, you know, a phrase, whatever it is that you try, try not to give away too much here. <laughs> Needless to say, this, this is part of the problem. So many to remember, so easy to forget. So what do many of us do? Well, you know, we choose simple ones. Some choose super simple ones. A reminder from an episode of The Office. Uh, it's saying the server went down. Does anybody know that password? Because otherwise we can't do any work. Oh, try password. Nope. Try zero, 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 zero. No. Okay, now try zero, 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 one. Okay, I'm not doing every number. Yeah, you get the idea. Well, a new study published by password management service NordPass lists the top 200 passwords across 30 countries. Imagine, it turns out we have an awful lot in common. The top one in this country is 123456. That's number two across the 30. Number two in Canada is the word password, as you heard there. The word password itself, that's number one. 
everywhere else. The rest of the top 10 is equally simple, you know, five, four, three, two, one, uh, six ones, ABC one, two, three, and so on and so forth. There are some gender differences, which are interesting. Men tend to use those numbers and swear words. Women tend to use names uh, commonly. So, of course, experts warn this isn't just about being novel. Experts warn the problem with the really common ones is that they can take less than a second to be cracked by someone who knows what they're doing. Um, joining me now is Gerald Casulis. He's VP of Business Operations at NordPass with more on what the most common ones are, what the problem is, and what you can do about it. Thanks for your time. My pleasure, Ben. So how do you do this research? I don't imagine you just phone people up and ask for their passwords, do you? <laughs> Um, No, so we actually work uh, together with independent uh, cybersecurity researchers who analyze the data from all the breaches that happened um, globally in the year. So, for instance, in 2022, they evaluated three terabytes of databases um, globally. So you've come up with the top 200 globally. um, And if ever people thought we were all very different, the one thing about passwords is that it turns out a lot of us are pretty much the same. Yeah, unfortunately, we try to stick to easy passwords, keeping the habits very simple. You know, we are creatures of habits, unfortunately, and we tend to go for something that we can easily remember. And, you know, we can type in on the keyboard quickly when it's going to be a combination of simple letters or, or numbers. That's what we tend to stick on, unfortunately. When we look at Canada specifically, it may not come as a um, as a great surprise what the top 10 looks like, but uh, what does the top 10 look like? Yeah, so uh, to be honest, it's very similar to global trends. So number one password in Canada is one, two, three, four, five, six. And globally, that's uh, number two passwords used, right? And in Canada, number two is password. And then you have pretty much the same combination, like 5431 and mm-hmm. Kuberti. And so, yeah, it tends to stay the same. It tends to stay. What is the number one globally? I think I forgot to look. Uh, password. Password. So number two <laughs> so, in Canada, number one around the world. Okay, I get it. Exactly. So number one and number two in Canada and around the world, just swapping places pretty much. You found some interesting um, uh, gender differences too. It, it tends that the most common passwords in Canada amongst women tend to be different uh, than the ones that are most common amongst men. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. And it's interesting because we do this research every year and we every year we see similar statistic where, you know, between men and women. So, for instance, women tend to use nicer words. Like, for instance, even here in Canada, like female, they use like number one uh, common password is sunshine. And right. then ca- passwords come in as I love you and things like that. Right. And men aren't as nice. <laughs> men tend to use swear words a lot more than women uh, as a password and ne- don't tend to use nicer words as commonly as women. Yeah, I was noticing that women tended to u- use names, right? Uh, names of loved ones, for instance. And men tended to use the one, two, three, four, five, six password and so on, the really utilitarian ones, uh, along with some, with some other, as you pointed, some more colorful yeah. ones. Um, yep, it's absolutely. really interesting to find out what people use. And I guess the top 10 is all very, in Canada is all very, uh, things you would expect. So words like guest, uh, you know, six ones, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or any combination mm-hmm. of that. ABC one, two, three is a big one too. I guess one of the, what this is all about though is security. So what is the danger when you use such a simple password? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And a lot of us don't really 
think about passwords as one of the security aspects that protect our digital identity. And um, we tend to lean away from that and, and go for the passwords that we can easily remember. But the password is obviously the first entry level into protecting our identity, but it's going to be like logins like Facebook or Instagram or our emails and whatnot. And we tend to stick to our habits where we're creating similar passwords everywhere. And we think that we need to remember those passwords when the matter of fact, using a password manager like NordPass, for instance, you don't need to remember a password. Therefore, you should be leaning towards a safer password that wouldn't be easily guessable. And I think the answer to the question, the main thing is when you create a password that is unsecure, uh, for hackers using automated tools to, to guess the password, it could literally take under one second to crack it. Really something as simple as a one, two, three, four, five. I, I mean, that, that would be one that you would enter if, you know, if, if you were even had no idea about security, yeah. that might be the first one you would enter. I guess one of the yeah. other things that comes up too is I, I think that in general, and I'll speak for myself, you know, I tend to use uh, passwords that are simpler for things that I don't use, you know, things that are not, you know, things that you aren't, aren't like bank accounts or the things that are you feel you really have to protect. But there's a danger in that too, you pointed out. Uh, com- absolutely. Uh, we can look at it this way. Between the combination of different websites and the different data points that we enter on different logins where we don't necessarily create a secure password because we don't care about protecting that uh, that identity of ours too much. But then remember from each of data points that could be collected on the different websites, the hackers could absolutely get enough data points to, to be able to crack even secure passwords that we could be creating on our logins into online banking, for instance. Uh, and, you know, goes into identity theft and different things also where we could um, leak our addresses, we could leak our data births and full names and whatnot. And that could obviously be used to uh, to sell our data online as well, to, to target us better as well. So we want to avoid those things and we want to protect, learn to protect ourselves a lot better. How much more sophisticated are hackers today when it comes to spotting what could be called, you know, sort of building a profile of you, trying to figure out what it is that you might do, anticipating what you yeah. might use as a password? Because obviously, oftentimes you see those things on social media where people are like, tell me what your, you tell me what the name of your first pet. And you're like, you might as well just <laughs> tell someone your password, right? Yeah. I think one of the main things to uh, to realize is that Hackers don't sit at the laptops and guess our passwords, right? There isn't going to be a person at the end just sitting there and t- typing in different passwords, trying to guess what your ID login is. It, they tend to use sophisticated tools, same as we do, right? When we, you know, are trying to log in somewhere or whatnot. And hackers doing the same thing. They're using analytical tools. They're using the tools that would um, guess the passwords and that would, obviously mean that they could go through guessability of the password within milliseconds and try to apply thousands or millions of uh, guessable passwords in a short period of time. And those guessable passwords would be the same as we can see with the most common passwords globally. So <laughs> chances are, if you if you gain access to a leak to, I don't know, maybe 100,000 emails and apply these 200 most common passwords in, in the world to those 100,000 emails somewhere, you'll be able to log into at least you know a few of those um, logins and and those analytical tools that uh, that hackers use obviously simplify things for them and they're being very clever how they go about that right and, and once once someone gains access to one of your profiles how much easier is it for them to gain access to others oh very much so um, it, it gets easier and easier as you can imagine because by you logging into my login somewhere where I could be 
not necessarily securing that too much because this is not a very common login and whatnot where I don't need to protect my data there too much. But you'll be able to maybe get my full name there or my you know email, maybe my date of birth. And you combine that with other data points that you have on me, then suddenly that will potentially could gain, um, grant access to my other logins I have elsewhere. And then it goes back to the point where I said, a lot of people, including probably, you know, you and I, we fell victim to that. We tend to reuse passwords and because we go into that habit of trying to remember the passwords, right? So how many passwords can you remember, right? Probably what, two, three, four, five yeah. passwords. Yeah. And those could be even slightly, you know, even secure passwords could be a combination of words. And obviously it might take longer for the hacker to, to guess that password. But then what that means that imagine potential data leak happens where the website data and the database itself gets leaked. And even if I had a secure password there attached to it, that password is exposed with a password hash exposed to the dark web. And by hackers gaining access to that password, they could try to apply the same password to other logins that I have elsewhere. And by me falling victim to reusing the password and not you know, having good habits around the cybersecurity itself, they'll be able to gain access to my other logins and could be more important ones. It could be maybe Facebook accounts. And then obviously yeah. this opens a can of worms. Uh, so, so what can we do then to better protect ours? Other than the obvious, which is not use sort of the most obvious passwords. What can we do to better protect ourselves online? Uh, it's a great question, Ben. And uh, probably number one and easiest thing to do is get into the habit of using a password manager. So a password manager like NordPass, it provides you with a vault that's going to be able to encrypt the data for you, right? So you'll be able to store all your passwords in, in the vault. And also it will provide you with extra tools in there like password generator. So it will generate passwords for you that will be unique and will be unguessable by by hackers. And you wouldn't be, you always get unique different passwords everywhere. And this way, obviously this will eliminate the need to remember the password because pretty much every time you log in somewhere using a password manager, you're going to have autofill available. So pre-fill the passwords for you, simple and easy. And then going beyond that, probably the biggest tool that's available to every single one of us uh, that could be utilized in most of the logins that we create is a two-factor authentication. So most of the websites, they do a great job by promoting access uh, login through second factor authentication and to set that up. So whether it's going to be extra text message sent out to us when we're trying to log in elsewhere or using extra tool to, uh, to generate one-time passwords and whatnot when logging in. So things like that are adding value. So meaning that when someone tries to log in using our details, our passwords, the second factor authentication would be prompted. And obviously with them, without having access to, let's say your mobile phone, no one else will be able to utilize that analog again. So don't forget two-factor authentication, multi-factor authentication, and a password manager like NordPass. Yeah, I, I guess what, what it boils down to too is that uh, we are often, it's sort of a combination of um, laziness because we don't want to waste a lot of time on our passwords. <laughs> and, and just human nature, the, the fact that it's easy to forget passwords that you don't lose a lot um how often would you change your password then do you recommend well a good habit would be to do so every couple of months um i'd always say it probably even i don't do it all the time uh but every and every now and then um you should get into the habit and the good thing is password manager actually like NorthPass, for instance it reminds you to do so you can easily right. go in there and you can see how many weak passwords you have how many old passwords you have so you just need to get into the habit of following up with the notifications you're getting and just update uh, your passwords every three or so months 
Well put. Gerald Casillas, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure.